Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Imagine, listener, my excitement to discover that this week's episode of Londonist Out Loud was going to be all about fashion, and particularly the history of fashion in London. Uh, Not only because it was my long-awaited opportunity to road test a fetching little unitard and sombrero number that I've been waiting for a chance to wear, but more importantly because it's just the chance that I've been looking for to tell you all about the Acast player. If you don't know about it already, you really should. If you have about you a phone, then uh, you can participate in the joy that is Acast. And when I say a phone, I of course mean a smartphone, as opposed to, you know, a phone that uh, makes silly mistakes. The Acast app, it's available on Android, on Apple, you can get it for your tablet. And uh, what it does, apart from being a slick looking podcast platform, it also pops up pictures. So when we're talking about style here, you can take a look at the styles we're referring to. As a podcast listener, you're already well ahead of the pack in terms of tech. Why not be an early adopter also of Acast? And so, without further delay, we away to Hoban. And it is the 13th of June, 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. from the Hoxton Hotel in Hoburn, or Midtown, as people keep trying to persuade me to call it. And I think I'm refusing. The Hoxton Hotel is a very stylish place. It has a twin over in Shoreditch, I think. And it is the sort of place where a lot of people network and work on their laptops and keep quite a sharp eye on what's going on around them and who's coming in and who's going out. I suspect that it's a little bit of place to be seen, and that may well tie in with the subjects of today's show. We're talking fashion in London with Amber Bouchard, your fashion historian. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Uh, nice to... <laughs> That's a very formal beginning. We're going to be talking about, not surprisingly, the history of fashion and how it ties in with London. I think I need to find some footholds, first of all, in terms of the history of fashion. And maybe this is too obvious a question to begin with, I'm not sure. But can we separate fashion and style from each other, first off? Yeah, I think you can definitely separate fashion and style. Fashion really is about cycles. It's about changing styles. It's about um, obsolescence, essentially. The idea that 
you know, we don't wear clothing till it falls apart, um, till it's in rags anymore. You, you don't. Well, no, I think most people probably don't these days. I feel like an outsider on my own podcast already. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the idea. That's what, the, the, that's what fashion as a system tries to make us do. It's about consumerism. It's about consuming and about the rapid and continual changing of styles, really. Whereas style is generally thought of as something um, that is more inherent like sort of more individual more personal so you know maybe some people have a sense of style maybe some people don't and something that is more long lasting as well i think it's a question definitely a question of time when it comes to the difference between fashion and style fashion is seen as very fast very quick whereas style uh, sort of has more of a longevity to it essentially we'll obviously get on to the intimate relationship between uh, london and fashion as you're making that separation though it brings up ideas well there's that expression fashion victim of somebody who is at the mercy of fashion cycles to whatever degree to what extent is an individual able to impose themselves onto fashion and to what extent are they obliged to be doing the thing that everybody else is doing well, I think today, with the um, sort of advent of the internet and this, you know, the fast-paced communications that we have at this particular point in the 21st century, there are so many different fashions, so many different trends, and the whole cycle itself is so fast. Whether you're looking at high fashion sort of catwalk events um, and seasonal fashion in that respect or whether you're looking at the high streets people are just looking for constant change so that actually gives people uh, a certain amount of liberation I think from trends like it's you would never read a fashion magazine today and it would say this hem length is the only hem length for autumn this is what everyone will be wearing because you know markets have fragmented globalization uh, post-modernity etc etc all of this is fed into the fashion system as an industry and also the way that we consume fashion as well so we do take on board um, you know fashion information from various places whether it's magazines or whether it's the internet street style blogs things like that but I think there is room for people to negotiate their own sense of style within that as well what I think I'm hearing reading between the lines then is that whereas generalising wildly but like a hundred years ago it seemed like there was sort of one outfit that everybody was allowed to wear or that was available I should say certainly for men you can see this everybody wore more or less the same thing and then it seems like everybody happened to be wearing the same thing and then it seems like uh, much bigger waves of fashion were going on and, and now you're talking about a more fragmented multiplicitous setup is, is that a sort of a fair overview? Yeah, I think there's definitely a fair overview, yes. Um, I mean, if you look at fashion media, you know, say, for example, editions of Vogue from the 1920s or, uh, you know, the, the 1940s, it will talk about the silhouette for spring or the hem length or, you know, these, these kinds of things. There is still that language used in fashion reporting. It's not quite so dictatorial as it once was. I think fashion has become more of a conversation and... The internet has been hugely influential in that, really. Um, so let's talk about London in particular. I'm aware of London being an important hub. I'm aware of maybe the uh, two or three other places as well, like Paris, New York, uh, I think Milan to some degree. That seems a little bit arbitrary on the face of it. Why has London become an important corner of the universe as far as fashion goes? 
Well, London and Britain in particular has always been important, really, in terms of clothing and dress, to a large part because of the Industrial Revolution, which was, a lot of it was based on cotton production, um, textile manufacturing, not necessarily in London, more kind of up in the north. But in terms of the actual production of fashion, the production of dress, the UK has been very influential, very important. Of course, Paris has always been, well, since kind of about the 16th century, I think Paris has really been a fashion centre. There's been a lot of luxury industries in France, um, silk weaving, um, uh, you know, things to do with um, trimmings, trimmings. these kind of industries have been bolstered in France for centuries in the way that we think of, you know, champagne or those very fine foods, fine wines, we associate those with France. There have been similar industries in France to do with dress. So that's why we get this association with Paris and luxury and really being the height of fashion. Well, that's, that's an interesting one to jump on, though, because I know champagne has been very keen to associate itself with success. And to some degree, I think the public conception of champagne the product is a product of a successful public relations drive what about these other things that you're talking about in terms of areas being renowned for fashion is that an artificial construct or is it really down to a higher level of craftsmanship for example um well it's a bit of a mixture of both really i think um a lot of those industries had certain subsidies um, throughout history in France, so the government would really push um, those industries. They could see that it was that had a huge export value. Over here, of course, I mean the Industrial Revolution was affected kind of industry across the board. But again, throughout the history of fashion, different places have implemented different sumptuary laws. Basically laws like put into the statute books about what certain people could and couldn't wear. Uh, so historically it was used to kind of determine class and rank in society so only certain people could wear the colour purple because it was very expensive only certain, you know, only monarchy could wear cloth of gold Uh, these laws were very popular during the Tudor era but a lot of them helped to foster protectionism as well. So over here, the wool industry was very, very important. So certain laws were created stating that men had to wear woolen caps on Sundays and holidays, for example. It's a way of making sure that the industry continues to grow and flourish and that there's always a demand. It's a way you'd go, it's government regulation, basically. I'm assuming there are no sumptuary laws in place still, right? No, yeah, not in this country. How recently did they exist? Up until about the 17th, maybe early 18th century. There haven't been any around for quite a long time. But then again, when you think about it, if we're talking about governmental regulation of clothing, the Second World War... Uh, hugely, the government hugely regulated, you know, the factories, the production, the manufacture of clothing to a great degree um, because there was, obviously, there was need for it because certain materials were needed for the war effort. The utility scheme was implemented so that people across society could feel that they were all given the same options in terms of the sort of fashionable dress that they could buy, they could acquire. It's important for morale. So I guess that's, I mean, they're not sumptuary laws, but it is a way of government helping to sort of regulate the market, I suppose. So you're you're only allowed so many pleats in your trousers and that kind of thing? Exactly, yeah. Those were the utility scheme regulations were exactly things like that. Not using too much fabric, yeah, conserving elements. But also they got on board a number of London fashion designers, people like Hardy Amy's, Norman Hartnell, people who would go on to dress the Queen and they got them to create specific designs for the utility scheme so that people would see them as fashionable, as aspirational rather than this kind of dowdy 
you know, no frills kind of fashion. So there was a drive to try to get people interested in these clothes, even though it was very much what people had to be wearing rather than what people really wanted to be wearing. It's one of the great sadnesses in my mind that that whole 19, early 1940s look is pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's a shame there was a bloody great big war going with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, there's a fantastic exhibition going on at the moment at the Imperial War Museum called Fashion on the Russian, which is looking at the way that fashion and style really flourished during the Second World War, despite the global circumstances. And it really shows you the amount of diversity. You kind of think of the of dress during the 1940s as being very drab, very dowdy. But in reality, there were loads of bright colours and people were making their own clothes and people were making you know, dressing gowns out of silk escape maps. And really, there was a lot of creativity involved in people just wanting to still remain fashionable and still feel like they were dressing well. There might be a thing to talk about there from what you're saying to do with where the clothes are produced. That can only be a large part of all of this. Perhaps we'll come on to that or rather return to it in a minute. What about sketching out London's history in in fashion? Well, a lot of it is all to do with uh, the monarchy. Throughout history, you know, court circles tended to set the fashions throughout the majority of history up until relatively recently. So if we skip forward throughout all of that, London fashion really comes into its own in the post-war era. In 1966, there was, of course, the famous Time article saying, calling London swinging London. But London had actually been swinging for a lot longer than that. Mary Quant opened her first boutique bazaar in, I think it was 1955. It was quite a lot earlier than people assume. People think that nothing really happened until the 60s, but that wasn't the case at all. I mean, anyone that's read um, Absolute Beginners knows that these things were kind of happening before before the 60s actually hit anyway. Youth culture was growing. Young people had more income than ever before to spend on things like going out, on music, on fashion. So really it's that post-war era that London started to dominate global conversations about style. And designers like Mary Quant, who very much picked up their style from the street rather than from uh, sort of high culture or high fashion, they started to have an impact on what people in Paris were also designing And it led to the sort of decline in couture throughout the 1960s and really the rise of ready-to-wear as opposed to couture, which is the system that we still have with us today. Yeah, I don't think I understand it well enough to nod uh, confidently. (laughs) Uh, Well, couture is um, a very particular method of producing clothing and that's all done by hand, very, very intricate techniques, very, very highly skilled artisans, You find it in ateliers in Paris still to this day, whereas ready-to-wear is more mass-produced clothing. It's not quite high street clothing. That's a different kind of mass-produced fast fashion. But it's in between couture and and the high street, basically, ready-to-wear, pret-a-porter. Okay, so we come out of the back end of the 60s. We're on a high in London. Do we remain on that high? Um... Yes, uh, yes and no. I think the thing that the rest of the world really looks to London for in terms of fashion is street style. And in the post-war era, that was very closely aligned with subculture as well. So obviously you have the sort of um, rise of punk in the 1970s, which had a whole host of social and economic reasons behind it. Also had influence from the States as well, bands like the New York Dolls, um, things like that. But really punk from the outset was 
a mixture of clothing and music as well. I mean, if you think about Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood and what they were doing and their impact on the whole era with the Sex Pistols, it was you couldn't really separate the music from the style. And I think it's that link between music and style that people the world over know that they can look to London for that particular symbiosis. Interesting that you switched to the use of the word style at the end there because one of the things that comes to mind with punk in particular I guess is that it's very low-fi, you know, in its original uh, form, is is very low-fi. It's about kind of homemade, deconstructed stuff, and that seems entirely in keeping with what you said about style. But fashion and commodifying it actually seems a little inauthentic in a way. Well, yes. I mean, that's always the argument, but that's always what happens. I mean, these styles that kind of start on the street are always commodified, and I just think that's part and parcel. The sort of fashion system as a whole is it's very ravenous beast and tends to eat up anything in its path really. Yeah I wanted to ask you about that just the speed of these fashion cycles that you're talking about does that mean that particular fashions run the risk of not having enough time to develop before they're out there and having to perform? Yes and no I think you do you do tend to get styles recurring season upon season but I think people just learn to write about them in more slightly more creative ways so it sounds like it's something new when in reality it's not it's maybe not that new it's something that's that you've kind of seen the season before got an example of that maybe well just in terms of particular sort of styles like a few years ago we saw this sort of comeback of like bodycon dresses and then that sticks around for a long time but people kind of write about it in a slightly different way each season so whereas one season it might be you know amazonian but then the next season it might be all to do with the sort of 80s 90s revival linking back to sort of Robert Palmer videos that kind of thing people just find new ways to talk about these things I mean that's what a lot of the fashion media really is is just finding new ways to talk about old clothes (laughs) and and so the interview closes (laughs) with that revelation I sort of want to bring us up to the present day as far as but I'm not sure how much we've already covered that you, you would bring in at this point or what the journey for London in particular is between the period we were talking about and now uh, well, again, the 1980s, London was a very important style centre, I think. It always tends to be to do with youth culture. And so in the 80s, uh, there was a fantastic club scene here in London, Blitz Club, Billy's, places like that. You know, you've got sort of the new romantics, Boy George, people like that, really sort of setting global trends from a desire to go out and dress up and be incredibly extravagant which again is similar like it might seem like a very different idea to um, the punks of the previous decade but again it's all about youth culture and people creating their own style that then becomes commodified and becomes a mass kind of global trend I guess but it's street style really sort of bubbling up to high fashion that London is quite famous for. That's what London's known for and that's what people tend to come to London for. So, for example, if you go to London Fashion Week today, it will be a very different experience from going to Fashion Week in, say, Paris or somewhere. There still tends to be a lot of creativity. We have a lot of fantastic art schools in this country which really foster that type of creativity and that really comes through, I think, in the people that attend London Fashion Week and the kind of designers that we see growing here and flourishing here as well. 
When you think of art, and particularly I think this came onto my radar when thinking of the Young British Artists School of Art, it came as quite a surprise, I guess, and it shouldn't have because it's been going on for centuries, but the idea that quite openly an artist would have an idea and then employ a bunch of other people to put that idea together and that surprised me in the sense that it seemed like they should be a little more hands-on and it started to challenge my idea of what art actually is if you're not the one producing it yourself um, you mentioned the art schools and I just wondered if there are divisions within the fashion world you know who are the crafts people the artisans that you were talking about who are having the ideas and uh, getting other people to do the hands-on work how does it break down well I mean, I think that that kind of process of artistic creation actually has quite a long lineage. I mean, obviously Warhol and the factory, but even, I mean, I'm not an art historian, but from what I understand about a lot of Renaissance studios, the way they worked, it was quite rare to have just one artist working on one painting. And it's similar across the creative board, I think, to a degree. Like, if you write a book, if, you know, whether it's non-fiction or if it's a novel, there will be a lot of people who have input into that, whether it's an agent, whether it's an editor. There are other people that help to shape the outcome of what that particular you know, piece of art is, essentially. And I think it's the same with fashion or with any, any kind of design, really. The sort of big design houses will have huge amounts of people working um, with them and working underneath them as well. So you will have a lot of really highly skilled artisans who maybe work for particular beading companies, let's say, or lace-making companies, or you might have people in-house working at design houses like you know, the House of Chanel or the House of Dior, for example. The actual breakdown in terms of where the designer's work ends and other people's work comes into it I think it's quite difficult to distinguish that uh, you can also well fashion is a very strange industry in that it's an industry where designers names continue after they die so Chanel and Dior exactly who I just mentioned um, you know neither of the founders of those houses have been alive for quite a few decades and yet the house continues and you bring in new designers under that house name. I mean, it happened with Alexander McQueen very recently. So it's kind of a slightly unique industry, I think, in that way. Like, you wouldn't do that with painters, for example. You wouldn't have, like, the house of Rembrandt continuing today, for example. I think the creative process is always collaborative, really. I think the idea of there being overriding geniuses is generally kind of a very good PR on the part of the people around them, essentially. That's not to say that there are no there are no artistic geniuses. But, but it doesn't hurt to have a nice photogenic, eccentric figurehead. Yes, yeah. I mean, that makes for a great story. And recently, I mean, people like Karl Lagerfeld. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. Or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. 
That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Are newsworthy. Uh, John Galliano, you know, for good or for bad, is very newsworthy. So it does make a lot of sense to have these quite flamboyant personalities at the head of these design houses. And of course, they work incredibly hard and are geniuses to a degree. But my point is that in every sort of area of creation, there's always more than one person that helps to shape the final product. And fashion is no different in that respect. But it raises the prospect, presumably, if uh, you've got your in house. I don't know, your in-house lace experts, let's say, and lace goes out of fashion for a couple of years. Does that mean that you've got, and I use the term advisedly, swathes of lace experts who are kicking around looking for something to do? Well, that, most often, I think, people will work with specific companies who um, specialise in those particular areas rather than having them in staff. When it's something that's that particular, like lace, or unless it's a sort of house, like a design trait that features in those collections that you know particular design houses collections all the time they'll probably look to outside companies like I think Lesage in Paris specializes in beading and does stuff from couture through to um, uh, Moulin Rouge costumes things like that it's those kind of areas of artisanship that people tap into when they need them basically we're going to do a handbrake stop here for a commercial and our sponsor of course is Audible we depend uh, deeply and gratefully upon them for keeping us on the air and we've got a recommendation here uh, which has nothing to do with fashion obviously I should let you in on a secret we were trying to spot something that was uh, unaudible that that was worthy of recommendation an administrative error meant that we very nearly ended up recommending books on the Third Reich (laughs) yeah exactly so I'm not actually going to recommend anything on the Third Reich but this book Food a Cultural Culinary History by Professor Ken um, Albala looks really interesting I'm really I'm interested in any kind of cultural history I mean that's really what I do I'm a cultural historian but I tend to specialize in fashion and dress but you can never just look at one area of that I mean if you're looking at dress elements come into it politics economics technology social history all of these things affect it and that's what I love about cultural history is that you're never looking at just one thing so food is a hugely interesting and rich area I think where you can tell a lot about a society by the food that they eat you can tell a lot about society by the clothes that they wear so I would definitely love to read um, a culinary a cultural culinary history of food I think that would be fascinating and listen you can too if you want for free by signing up for a 30-day free trial with the Audible service and you can claim your 30-day free trial, your free book and if you don't fancy it after 29 days, 29 and a half days, you're leaving it late at that point, uh, then you can sign off and there is uh, nothing to pay. But you will be supporting us just by doing that. And the good news, if you've signed up for the Audible service already more than 12 months ago, you can still get this for free because you're entitled to another free book. We have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist.
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and with me is Amber Buchart. She is a fashion historian, and I've been uh, learning about the Olympicopolis, which I should probably know about, but but don't. Earlier on, before we started recording, I was finding out what Normcore is, and now I learn that there's an Olympicopolis that I've never heard of before. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that it's the area in Stratford, part of the Olympic site, is being redeveloped as a cultural hub. I teach at London College of Fashion and part of what's going to be happening in this new Olympicopolis, as it's been dubbed, space, uh, is that the whole of London College of Fashion is going to, um, the plan is to move it over to Stratford. Oh really, the whole lot? A whole lot, so it's all in one place, because at the moment it's spread out all over London. Shepherd's Bush, Oxford Circus, Holborn, um, Hackney, but the whole lot will be in Stratford. There's also going to be new outposts of things like the V&A, possibly even the Smithsonian in America have talked about having their first space outside of America there as well. So the idea is that it's being sort of regenerated into a cultural hub, much like Albertopolis was in the 19th century, which is the area around South Kensington, where we now have the V&A and the um, Science Museum and the Natural History Museum. That was called Albertopolis because it was Prince Albert, who was kind of the mastermind behind a lot of it, bringing all of those cultural... Uh, was really sort of starting all of those cultural um, institutions in the wake of the um, Great Exhibition. So this should really be the, either the Tessa Jowlopolis or <laughs> the Bor- Borisopolis. But please, can we not call it the Borisopolis? <laughs> that would be horrendous. I don't want to work in the Borisopolis. <laughs> Another uh, quarter of London that we haven't yet talked about. We, we, I, th- I think with Mary Quant, we sort of touched on Carnaby Street a little bit, but maybe we could unpack that more. And also Savile Row. Yeah, Savile Row has been um, hugely important in the history of London dress, really. I mean, for a long time, London was known more as a menswear capital than as a women's wear capital. Like I said, it was really the sort of post-war era that... Uh, London became known as a style centre. But before that, it was, you know, it was very, very well known for its quality of tailoring. So whereas Paris had couture and these kind of luxury, very um, expensive women's fashions, London has always been much more about tailoring and about um, menswear and the etiquette that goes along with that. So you still find a lot of the sartorial history of London on that one street, really. It's fantastic going and having a a walk around. Also, a lot of them are really embracing their heritage at the moment. So if you go into somewhere like Geeves and Hawks, which has an incredible military heritage, they now have their own archivists and they have um, antique pieces out on display. And it's absolutely fascinating because you kind of assume that the idea of decorating the body has historically been a very um, female preserve. But the reality is that, you know, officers, soldiers, um, naval officers have historically been, you know, incredibly exquisitely decorated as well with all kinds of spectacular gold lacing and braiding and all of that kind of pomp and ceremony that goes with it. You can really get a sense of that if you go into these places on Savile Row. I guess we're quite unusual as a species in that the balance is that way around, aren't we? In a lot of animals, it's the male who has all the fancy plumage. But you've given us a perfect link, of course, into your book about uh, nautical fashion. And you mentioned that that has its roots in London. It's easy to forget London has a big nautical uh, heritage itself. But what about the fashion side of things as far as your book goes? What, what, What is the book about? 
Well, speaking of London specifically, um, the book really starts in Will's Coffee House in Covent Garden, which was a favourite haunt of naval officers at the time. Uh, well, at the time, in the 18th century, in the 18, uh, 1740s. And it was there that a group of officers came together and decided that they wanted some kind of standardised, um, regulated uniform that would succinctly display their rank and their status. And so they petitioned the king, and the king said to them, yes, you can have this standardised uniform, uh, create your designs and submit them to me and we'll choose the best one. So the interesting thing about that is that it was officers that actually designed their own uniform. Please tell me we have all the uh, uh, designs that they submitted. Unfortunately we don't. No, unfortunately. But the one that finally that the King chose that made it through uh, we think was a design put forward by Captain Philip Sumarez who'd just recently completed a round-the-world voyage. And it was his design was in navy blue and had various details. <laughs> was it already called navy blue? <laughs> no, uh, I, I, no, I don't think it was already called navy blue. That would be a hell of a coincidence. <laughs> it would, yeah. But we, do, we tend to think of blue being a natural colour for the navy because it's for seafaring, etc., etc. But it, things could have been very different. Some of the designs that were submitted were in red, some of the designs were in grey. So it really, kind of that moment was quite sort of uh, seismic in terms of the way we think about nautical dress. I'm reminded as well uh, that another theme that goes on, a motif of nautical wear is stripes. You're wearing stripes now. Uh, Where does that come from? Well, these stripe tops originated with French fishermen. It was worn around the coast of France, was an undershirt. Fishing is a very treacherous job still. And it was incredibly important that men were able to keep warm. So they had a knitted sort of undershirt and it was striped. And then in the mid-19th century, the French Navy actually adopted that into their uniform. So it became associated with the French Navy as well. And it's really that association meant that later generations of designers, people like Coco Chanel, people like Jean-Paul Gaultier, really picked up on that element of naval uniforms, sailor style, and incorporated it into their own collections. So you kind of have the associations with the seaside and being on holiday and being by the coast, but you also have those kind of associations of couture as well. So it was quite an interesting item. It was something that very much started off as workwear um, and uniform and then has now become a kind of chic classic, I guess, is what people think of the Breton top. Yeah, and in my mind, it's got that sort of uh, 50s, 60s Riviera associations going on there as well. I feel like I knocked you off beam as regards the naval side of things there. It links to um, Savile Row because a lot of uniform history is bound up with Savile Row and with tailoring. Men would have their own tailors that they would go and see who would create um, uniforms set to specific patterns that the Admiralty would have um, regulated. And so places like Gives and Hawks particularly have that military and naval heritage. It actually used to be two, form, two firms. Hawks was a military tailor and Gives was a naval tailor. Gives, the company, actually, in a slightly roundabout way, stretches right the way back to Lord Nelson in Portsmouth. And you can see that there's a sort of company trajectory that comes from there. So it really has very strong naval credentials. And you can really see that when you go into their store in Savile Row. You can see that that's still a very big part of their brand, of who they are. 
Um, and especially as more and more of these places on Savile Row are being bought up by, um, a lot of them are being bought up by Chinese companies. And then that British heritage becomes even more important and even more valuable, really. It becomes a real asset for the company as a whole. Which maybe, and this, oh, this is a big question, uh, I'm not sure how how sharp it's going to be either um, but there was there was something that you said at, right at the beginning which was along the lines of fashion being the province of the wealthy and the court and royalty years ago what I realised as you spoke was that presumably the uh, mass production of clothing means that people well I include myself of course who couldn't have been players in the fashion world or given it any thought you'd have just uh, bought what uh, I mean I, like I said I still try and adhere to these values of just buying what I need and wear it out but the idea that you, you'd consider yourself anything to do with fashion would be uh, just unthinkable it, it wouldn't enter your mind um, I presume uh, whereas now it, everybody is aware of what sort of fashion they're picking up when they take something off the peg we've got that commodification we've got that mass production going on it sounds as though there's some sort of a drain going on as far as production as well. So production's going to some of the places where it can be done more cost-effectively in the world. Do you have kind of a brain drain going on then? Is, is fashion, now that it's been sold to the masses, is it, is, it, is it now being, is the high end of it being sucked out of the West? Short answer, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, to go to your first point first... Did I make points? Um, slightly, I think, yeah, in a roundabout way, yeah. About it being the preserve of, of the wealthy is true uh, to a degree, but that's not to say that there haven't always been aspirations. That's not to say that people had absolutely no interest in it. I mean, the whole purpose of sumptuary laws was, well, A, to foster sort of protectionism, but B, to make sure people didn't dress above their station. So the fact that those laws existed kind of shows that people were trying to dress above their station, were interested in using dress as a means of social mobility in a way. Oh, that, that's really interesting. Okay, so every, everybody was straining at the leash rather than uh, wandering around in old sacking and being perfectly content with it. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think so. I don't think it's the case that no one who, could, who couldn't afford it was interested in it. You know, people are have always been interested in certain aspects of it I think in um, adorning the body like adorning the body is something that has happened since the dawn of time you know in the way that creating art or creating sculpture in the human form has been around really since the dawn of humanity adorning the body has been around for as long as well it's something that is quite inherent I think within the human condition in a way And in terms of the idea that um, the sort of talent is being sucked out of the West, I think um, there are huge issues at the moment in terms of globalisation of production, you know, whether it's technological products, whether it's fashion, you know, sweatshops are a huge issue. Ethical fashion brands are on the rise, thankfully. People have more of an awareness. There are certain... um, The Rana Plana... The Rana Plaza factory disaster a few years ago in Bangladesh really opened a lot of people's eyes, I think, to the effects that the enormous rate of consumption in the West is actually having on the rest of the world. Uh, Because it's very easy to not think about it, because we don't see the production, we don't see the effect that it has on other people's lives. And then I think that particular disaster was a bit of a wake-up call to a lot of people. In the wake of that, something called the Fashion Revolution Day was started, um, which is a movement every year on the date that the factory disaster happened where people kind of come together and ask brands through social media 
who made my clothes. It's about making the um, production chains more transparent basically because it's where you know so many huge brands so many of them can't even trace their own sort of manufacturing because it goes through so many contractors that is very hard to regulate and very hard to know if these people are being given the rights that they deserve essentially in terms of working hours breaks windows you know ventilation in the room things like this so it's caused a lot of awareness i think that it's not People think of uh, sort of fast fashion as something fun that everyone can kind of get involved with. Like you say, it's become more democratic. Like everyone can afford to dress fashionably for a very low price. But that does have costs that are being paid around the world for our consumption, essentially. And it's something people are thinking more and more about. It occurred to me, with the mention of sweatshops, that you know, I'm, I'm feeling bold in saying this, but in, I'm going to say until recently, but I might be wrong, It might, uh, maybe it still goes on, there were sweatshops in the East End. The East End generally has a long history of involvement with the rag trade. I wonder, we've spoken in previous podcasts about the Jewish tailors, the architecture of the area reflecting that, the big windows at the top of their buildings and so forth. Is there anything that we can say about the East End in terms of uh, fashion? Yeah, well, the East End is different to the West End in that in the West End you had a lot of, you know, areas like Mayfair, areas like Savile Row, catered to a very sort of upper-class clientele, I guess. Uh, whereas in the East End, you traditionally have a lot of rag markets, like second-hand markets, things like that. I mean, to a degree, it's what the area is still kind of known for. I mean, now we call it vintage clothing <laughs> rather than second-hand um, markets. But yes, the waves of immigration that have really come into the East End have all affected the way that people in the area dress and have affected the industries around there as well. So you mentioned the Jewish tailors. But, I mean, I live around there now. I live in Bethnal Green, and there's loads of sari shops along Bethnal Green Road. Um, if you go to places like Petticoat Lane you can, or uh, Ridley Road in Dalston, you can find huge amounts of wax-printed cottons that are sold in West Africa. It's hugely vibrant, and you can really see the really positive effects of immigration in the way that people dress and the diversity and the colour, the amount of colour around there is just fantastic. And that's one of the things that I really love about the area is that rich history with the rag trade, but also it really shows the cultural importance of clothing as well. I mean, the irony is about um, a lot of those fabrics, especially, for example, something like um, wax-printed fabrics that we associate very heavily with West Africa, For a lot of years, they were produced in this country around Manchester. They're also produced in Holland, Holland, uh, Dutch wax, it's called, and also some within West Africa itself as well, in um, Nigeria. But unfortunately, as with most things now, a lot of it is actually produced in China and then imported here or imported into West Africa as well. If the listener wishes to find out a little bit more, really from an academic point of view, you know, fashion's all around us all the time here in London, but if the listener wants to approach this from a slightly more academic point of view, there are lots of opportunities for engagement with fashion. Yeah, it's quite an exciting time at the moment in terms of fashion history and, as you said, the sort of an academic approach to dress. Museums around the capital are really embracing it. There's Fashion on the Russian at the Imperial War Museum, which is great. As I mentioned, sort of documents the history of dress in the Second World War. There's the incredible Alexander McQueen exhibition on at the V&A at the moment, which really is a sort of profile um, of a particular type of design genius. 
There's the Fashion and Textile Museum in Bermondsey, which has a great display at the moment about Riviera style. You mentioned Riviera style earlier. And in fact, I've got a little nautical chic room there as well, documenting uh, pieces from the book. It's really something that more and more museums are really embracing the idea of dress as a conduit to cultural and social history. So there's just more and more coming all the time. The v are about to open... Um, an exhibition on the history of shoes. They're also staging a huge season in the autumn on the fabric of India, all about the way that clothes from India have hugely impacted the way that we dress in the West. So, I mean, if you're interested in these areas, there's so much to see and do in London at the moment that it's really a fantastic time. Well, I feel inspired. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to rush home and change from my third best sweater to my second best sweater immediately. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, can find out about me at amberbutchart.com or on Twitter or Instagram, amberbutchart. And do uh, look up my book, of course, Nautical Chic. Uh, it's available in all good bookshops. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's it. Amber Butchart, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Amber Butchart. Thanks to, to Mark Bart and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Sons from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.